This is the World War II Radio Podcast. A date which will live in infamy. This is London. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Go ahead, Berlin. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Welcome to the World War II Radio Podcast. Today we have the NBC News of the World from the morning of November 24th, 1942. It includes updates on the war from London, Cairo, Australia, Washington, and New York. World War II Radio Podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production. If you like the show, please remember to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. So thanks for listening. And we hope you enjoy today's episode of the World War II Radio Podcast. Good morning, everyone. From the NBC Newsroom in New York, we call in our correspondents all over the world with direct reports of the latest news. For a summary of all developments up to the moment, we take you first to Edward Doyce in London. This is London. Reports from Algiers about the fighting in Tunis contain a note of caution. It is suggested that the Axis forces have brought across to Tunisia far greater air forces from all over Europe than had hitherto been surmised. The advance of General Anderson's first army is said to be held up by this Axis predominance in the air. The capitulation of French West Africa and Dakar will allow more Allied troops and planes to be moved into Tunis, but speed seems now to be the word. The 8th British Army has entered Jadabia after badly mauling an Italian division which the retreating Germans left behind. Axis forces evacuated the oases of Jallo in southern Libya and British troops moved in. Thus, this menace on the Allies' southern flank has been removed with little loss. The three Red Armies closing the ring around the Germans in Stalingrad made new and successful advances yesterday. The Soviet communique this morning stated that several inhabited localities had been occupied after fierce fighting. Furthermore, the Soviet troops in Stalingrad itself have started a westward advance, both from the northern factory belt and from the southern part of the city. This may indicate that the 300,000 German troops are trying to escape out of the trap. To succeed, however, they will have to fight every mile of the way because the Soviets claim that the ring around them is almost closed. Advancing southwestwards in the Don Elbow, a Russian panzer division cut up one German infantry division and one panzer division. Dr. Goebbels, broadcasting from Berlin, tried to explain away this latest German defeat by saying that one of the basic points of German strategy in the East has been to open gaps so that the Bolsheviks would rush in and risk destruction. Laval has placed the official stamp of approval on the French fascist efforts to organize an African phalange recruited from young Frenchmen in France to help the Axis in Tunisia. Paris Radio, in calling for recruits to this new legion, said that France is now at war with the Allies. The British Ministry of Economic Warfare revealed this morning 
that the German government is engaged in the slave trading business of selling human hostages in order to obtain foreign currency. Joint statements by the ministry and the Dutch government in London charge that German agents approach persons in neutral and allied countries with offers that they can buy the release of relatives, friends, business associates in German-occupied countries for sums in the neighborhood of $20,000. If the sums that demanded are remitted in foreign currency, preferably neutral currency, to designated German agents, exit visas from German-occupied countries are promised to relatives or friends. I return you now to the National Broadcasting Company in New York. That was Edward Doyce reporting the news from London. We take you now to Grant Parr reporting from Cairo. Hello, New York. This is Grant Parr speaking from Cairo, Richard. Backing into a gila yesterday, fighting just enough to protect their rear. Eighth Army units, meanwhile, occupied Ashadabia, 75 miles northeast of this 30 bottleneck, where the enemy will almost certainly stand if he intends to stand at all. To the southeast, 160 miles into the desert from Aguila, British troops guarded the deep flank of the Allies in an oasis called Jalo. The Italians had kept a garrison there, but abandoned the spot in the face of British air and ground action. Jalo is a useful stopover for anyone who wants to go roaming about the southern desert, and as such is of some strategic value. From Jalo, under certain conditions, the force equipped for desert work might strike north of its opponent's communications. For that reason, Jolly was a good place to have. With it, we are protected from surprise bows from the south. In Thoronica, the war was chiefly a trucking job. The Royal Engineers were working overtime in chill, wet weather, repairing roads. Sappers were removing mines from the highway edges. Mechanics were putting trucks, both our own and the enemy's, in shape. It's vital to our offensive operations that our huge truck convoys roll unimpeded across Thoronica to the Aguirre front. We will use Benghazi Harbor soon, but in war there is no such thing as needless duplication when it comes to supply lines. It's interesting to note now that during the early stages of our advance, the Royal Air Force did things with air transport that rivaled any feats of the Luftwaffe. The mud was so bad in Cyrenaica that the supply trucks never kept up with the tanks. So gasoline-carrying transport planes got the vital fuel to them. There were, of course, occasional enemy stores to be used, but airland cooperation put the 8th Army forward in those critical days. The Allied Air Forces continued to make acts of supply lanes exceedingly dangerous. Torpedo bombers effectively raided an enemy merchant vessel southeast of Sardinia, hitting it amidships. The vessel was later sunk. An airfield at Palermo, Sicily was strafed. Deserta was bombed again. The fighters also played havoc with enemy's air transport systems. Three large enemy planes were shot down off the east coast of Tunisia and a schooner raked with cannon fire. I return you now to New York. For the latest developments in the southwest Pacific, we take you to Australia. This is Sydney Albright calling from Australia. The enemy in New Guinea had another severe setback when three more points of military importance fell into Allied hands. Australian troops entered Zona. And the advance is continuing towards San Amanda Point, a stronghold in the enemy beachhead. General MacArthur's headquarters have not officially claimed the capture of Burma, but there is still a small amount of resistance from the few remaining gaps. And it is known that much cleanup operations are in progress. And an announcement is expected shortly of the complete annihilation of these defenders. 
The first Australian patrol is reported to have entered the town on Sunday. Six India Dares, three miles southeast of Buna, has been captured by American forces. To take the case, the Americans had to sweep aside violent opposition by the Japs, who had well-prepared machine gun nets and had snipers posted in the treetops. A third column has overcome the enemy at Tukutu, six miles to the south, and is still pushing forward. While the Japanese are resisting strongly, the development of the three-pronged move has apparently placed them in a hopeless position. More parties endeavoring to escape on rocks down the Kumusi River have been wiped out. Lending a helping hand to Australian troops in their march along the coast, to the aid of American forces storming Buna, Allied aircraft yesterday heavily escaped Sananda Point, where the Japs are reported to be in strength. The spotlight in the militia service issue has switched today to the Minister for Labor, Mr. Ward, following his public announcement last night that he had very strong objections to the Prime Minister's proposal to extend the area of operations of the militia for service outside Australia. There's a great deal of speculation as to the future position in the cabinet of the Labor Minister because of his frank decision to join in with other governmental department heads. In any event, the party leaders were able to avert a disaster by securing the cooperation of previous non-supporters of the issue who stepped into the breach for the sake of unity. This is Sidney Orbright speaking from Australia. Now from our New York newsroom, here is the latest developments on the Russian situation. The great Russian offensive at Stalingrad has swept into its fifth day, still going strong on the flat plains west and south of the Volga city of Steel. Today's communique gives few details of the latest fighting, but it says more ground was gained overnight on both ends of a giant nutcracker closing around the German siege army. Many hundreds more Germans were killed and captured in addition to the 50,000 casualties and prisoners announced last night for the first four days of the campaign. One prong of the double-sided offensive has been widened out to a breadth of 75 miles. It extends from the college positions 50 miles due west of Stalingrad to a new point fully 125 miles northwest of the city. The offensive columns in this sector are said to have smashed enemy resistance at several points since yesterday. 22 German tanks were knocked out in this fighting, and seven guns, an ammunition dump, and a wireless station were captured. 70 trucks and 25 planes were destroyed at one town, and 1,000 Germans killed in a surprise attack. South of Stalingrad, one unit is said to have killed 850 of the enemy and captured more than 500. The Russian hold on the railroad from the south has been widened by the capture of two more towns. Inside Stalingrad itself, siege-toughened defenders have knocked the Nazis out of 17 more blockhouses. And everywhere else on the long front, the Russians have gained in local fighting, including the recapture of a strong Nazi point near Leningrad. Now here is further information on the Australian situation. American military leaders believe that the Japs are fighting a war of their own, depending little, if any, on what happens to their Axis partners. Correspondent Charles P. Arno says this conclusion is based on several incidents, all pointing to Japan's independence strategy. 
For instance, there's Japan's maintenance of diplomatic relations with Soviet Russia, Germany's bitterest enemy. And contrary to many predictions, Jap failure to attack Siberia. There also is a report that the Japs turned down a request by Hitler to increase their naval activity in the Indian Ocean. And now here are the latest developments in our own capital, reported by Kerry Longmire from the newsroom in Washington. Dr. Carlos Arroyo del Rio, the first president of Ecuador to visit the United States in history, will address the House of Representatives today in extraordinary session. Officials here in charge of Pan-American relations hope that this gesture will not go unnoticed. Not go unnoticed, that is, in the capitals of Argentina and Chile, the only countries in the Western Hemisphere which have not yet come out in open opposition to the Axis. Peace reigns once more on the floor of the Senate following the decisive defeat yesterday of the move to repeal the poll tax in eight southern states. An attempt to gag southern senators filibustering against this repeal bill was voted down decisively, 41 to 37. Peace may reign in the Senate, but war has broken out all over again in a new quarter here. That is the dispute between Donald Nelson's War Production Board on one side and the Army and Navy on the other. Now, this fight is nothing new but many persons thought it was all settled long ago. Now it seems to be flaring up again to a showdown. A showdown to settle once and for all whether civilians will control war production or whether the Army and Navy brass hats will handle that war production. Washington is still full of gossip about a bitter duel between Mr. Nelson and the Army's General Somerville, a duel for direct personal charge of the war machine. But here's the background of this new dispute which may or may not be as important as some make it out. Mr. Nelson named his WPB vice chairman, Charles E. Wilson, to be supreme boss last week over war plane output. This would take out of the Army's and Navy's hands their authority to schedule this war plane output, and General Somerville is said to be fighting that order tooth and nail. Mr. Nelson may have to take his case to the White House direct. Most officials here, incidentally, seem to think civilian control must be maintained. They quote Wendell Wilkie's remark that military officers, after all, are just technical experts. Civilians, such as the president, must make the final judgments after getting these technical reports. And there's more news about gasoline rationing. Some congressmen who don't seem to think the rubber shortage is as bad as it's made out to be are fighting the measure for nationwide gasoline rationing, a measure which the experts say is vitally necessary. So today, they are calling rubber administrator Jeffers on the carpet before a House committee to explain. There is no doubt what Mr. Jeffers is going to say, either. He is going to lay down the law and tell Congress we've got to have gasoline rationing or else. Washington still has direct news, little direct news, I should say, about Admiral Darlan's reported deal to put Dakar in our hands. Officials here certainly hope the scheme works out as reported. And that's all from Washington. Ladies and gentlemen, you've been listening to the latest news reported by NBC correspondents at home and overseas. We heard this morning from London, Australia, and Washington. For the latest news, keep tuned to this station. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Mm -hmm.